Hey, folks, uh, where, where do you shop? What's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite place to shop? Walmart, Target, Nordstrom's. Wow, we got better taste out there somewhere. Where else? Home Depot. All right, here's one of my favorites. You ready for it? Here is one of my all-time favorites. Yes, anybody else out there? Can you guess why I like it? <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a little cheap, and I'm usually a little cheap. I'll, I'll admit that. Free samples. Okay, there are many reasons why we like Costco. But here's my reason. My reason is because of their customer service. Do you know that when you buy something at Costco, if you don't like it, I mean, it can be months and months and months since you purchased it. I mean, you can buy something and literally a year later, if it's not electronic, a year later, if you don't like it, you can bring it back and they will take the item and give you a cash refund, as long as it's in fine condition, they'll give you a cash refund, no questions asked. It's amazing. Anybody ever experienced that at Costco? Okay, a few of you know what I'm talking about. They have incredible customer service, and I'm always impressed by that. I, I'm a big customer service guy, and I like being able to, to go to a store that really fulfills their mission of having good customer service. Now, there's another store that I like to shop at, actually, um, but, but this one, as far as the returns go, it's not as strong. Now, this store will remain nameless completely, but just, let's just put it this way. It slightly misses the mark. I mean, you know, just, it, it just, if, if there was like a, if there was like a mark to hit, it just slightly misses it for me. Just a little bit. I like to shop there. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to returns, this store, which shall remain totally nameless, just misses the mark. In fact, my wife, my wife can attest to this. She tries to return something to the store and they literally, you know what they do? They ask for your license and they, they check your license and they cross check it with your identity to find out if you've been returning more than six items in a calendar year. And if you've returned more than six items in a calendar year, they will not give you a cash refund at this store. Now, let me reiterate, I like shopping at this store that shall be, remain nameless. But nevertheless, I mean, they're so, they're harsh when it comes to the returns. And that frustrates me as a person who goes to the store and wants a little customer service, wants to see that service fulfilled to me. Well, in the scriptures, friends, God takes seriously the business of fulfilling our duties to one another. In fact, in the scriptures that we have today, Paul is going to say a few things about fulfilling our mission. And the title of my message here this morning is actually Fulfilling God's Mission from Romans 15, 7 to 21. Begin turning there if you haven't already. Romans 15, verses 7 to 21. Fulfilling God's Mission. And Paul, in the book of Romans, is going to talk about fulfilling your duty, doing what is right. And he's going to say that Jesus has fulfilled his duty. And in fact, Jesus is continuing to fulfill his duty before the Lord as he comes again to take us home to be with him. And Paul's going to say that I, Paul says, I am fulfilling my duty, Paul says. I've preached all around, planted churches. 
I fully preach the Gospel of Christ, Paul says. And here in Romans 15, he's also asking you and me, have we fulfilled our duties? Have we fulfilled our mission as individuals, as a church? The title again this morning is Fulfilling God's Mission from Romans 15. Would you all stand as we read it together? I'll read it uh, beginning in verse 7 to uh, verse 21. We've got a little lengthy text, but we're going to move through it rather quickly today. Romans 15, beginning in verse 7. Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, for this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him. The Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the Gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I dare not speak of any of those things through which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and in deed, to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the Gospel of Christ. And so I've made it my aim to preach the Gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom He was not announced, they shall see. And to those who have not heard, shall understand. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes this morning that we may see Your truth, that we may understand it, that we may live by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul writes in verse 7, Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, for those of you that haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of Romans. Um, actually, we've been going through two years now. And we're going to finish in June. Not, not right away, but in June. Um, it's been great. It's been a long study. It's been a, a hearty study for many of us. It's been difficult at times. And here, Paul is coming to the conclusion and he's writing some, kind of some summary statements. And here in verse 7 is one of those summary statements. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ has received us to the glory of God. 
This is a statement in summary of the last two chapters, chapter 14 and the early part of chapter 15. We were, we were studying it the last three weeks. And in those, uh, the last three weeks, we, we talked about the strong and the weak. We talked about Christian liberties, about gray areas of the Christian life. Things like eating and, and drinking and, and what we maybe listen to or, or, or the movie that we watch or, or these kinds of things. Areas that are somewhat gray, that some Christians would look at and say, yeah, that's fine, that's, that's acceptable. And other Christians would look at and say, I'm not so sure about that. And Paul said, remember what he said in the last chapter, turn back a page to Romans 14, verse 1. He said, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So he was talking to the strong Christian, the one who had a, a strong conscience, if you will, um, that, that they could do certain things within the realm of Christian liberty. And he was saying to that strong Christian, hey, receive the weaker brethren. And don't dispute with them about doubtful things. Show grace toward them. Don't judge them. Don't despise them. And he would say the same to the weak. He'd say to the weaker brethren, he'd say, hey, don't, don't judge the stronger brother who may do something that you think is unacceptable, but nevertheless the Scripture allows. Don't judge your brother over that. Shoot for unity here. Aim for unity. There's bigger fish to fry. The kingdom of God, Paul writes in chapter 14, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace. And so here, he culminates it. And he's talking to both the strong and the weak. And he says, receive one another. Just as Christ received us to the glory of God, why should we welcome one another? Why should we have open arms to one another? Because Jesus has had that toward us. And surely, surely we did not deserve it. Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 6 a, a quite, a, quite a telling passage about our condition. You yourselves, you do wrong and cheat. He's speaking to the Corinthians, but this is true of many Christians. You do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren, to your own brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, receive one another. Why? Because Jesus has received you. And look at the things that we have done. You might say, well, I, don't, I haven't done anything on that list. I could probably show you another list in which you've transgressed your Lord. And whether you're on this list or not, it really matters not. For all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us, least of all me, is worthy of our salvation. Not one. And yet Christ has received us. He's died on the cross for our sins. He's rose again victorious. And He has offered to us the free gift of eternal life to every single one who believes Him for it. Receive one another. Jesus has received you. We have no excuse not to welcome one another. To the strong, do not despise the weaker conscience of another. Show discretion. 
to your weaker brothers and sisters in the faith, you will be fulfilling God's mission as you do. And to the weak, do not judge your brother's actions in the gray areas of life. As you withhold judgment, you will be fulfilling God's mission. Receive one another. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. You'll bring glory to God, Paul writes, and bring honor to His name. He continues in verse 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Why else should we receive one another? Why else should we fulfill this mission, this duty? Because Jesus has fulfilled God's promises to both Jew and Gentile. When Paul writes in verse 8, he says, Now I say that Jesus has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. The word circumcision there is, is just a word he's using to refer to the Jewish people. He's saying Jesus has become a minister or a servant of the Jews, fulfilling the promises made to the Father. The Jews have in Christ what God has promised to Israel all along. In fact, the words has become, the words has become in verse 8 are in the perfect tense in Greek, which means Jesus has become the, the, the servant. In other words, He's done that in the past and He has, is continuing to minister to them. He's continuing to have enduring effect upon the people of the Jews, God's chosen people. The perfect tense indicates ongoing action. Jesus continues to have a role to play with respect to His chosen people. Jesus has been, He is, and He will be the appointed One through whom God will fulfill His promises to Abraham. And even in our, uh, our family memory verse this, this month, uh, we actually shortened it for maybe the sake of the, of the kids to keep it short and sweet, or, or maybe for the sake of Scott to keep it short and sweet. Um, but at the end of verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, Paul writes, and also for the Greek. Not only has Jesus fulfilled and will continue to fulfill His mission to Israel, in the interim period between His resurrection and His second coming, Jesus is bringing to bear His name throughout all nations. To the Jew first and also to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have been grafted in, being supported by the root of God's covenant with Abraham to bless all nations of the earth through Him. In verse 9, he writes that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. That's a promise, friends, that we as a community here are recipients of. Do you realize that? Paul's words in verse 9 is directed at all of you, assuming that uh, you're not Jewish. Um, you who are Gentiles, Jesus has come to not only fulfill the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also to show you mercy. To show me mercy. This is written for us. 
the promise that we, the nations, might be saved was foretold in all the Old Testament. Notice how he starts it off in verse 9. He says, as it is written, for this reason, he's quoting four Old Testament passages, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles, sing to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud Him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse. And he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now with, with 21st century American eyes, we might see just a string of verses. We might look at this and say, my goodness, he sure is repeating himself. I wonder why. They're all bundled together. They all say essentially the same thing. But for a Jew in the first century, they would have seen exactly what Paul was doing. They would have noticed exactly what Paul was trying to accomplish in stringing these verses together. You see, each of these verses come from a different part of the Old Testament. And I've, meant, I've, I've shown them in color to demonstrate that to you. Let's go ahead and bring up the next uh, notation there. As you notice, the, the writing in red, the first quotation from the Old Testament, is a quotation from David in 2 Samuel 22.50, a quoting from the writings, if you will, of the Old Testament. The second quote is quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 32, quoting the law, if you will. The third quote is in, in verse 11 is quoting David in, in Psalm 117, verse 1, or the psalmist, I should say, quoting the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And the final quote from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, quoting the prophets. Why does Paul do this? See, with, with our eyes, with, with just you know, 21st century Westerner eyes, we just see a string of verses. To the first century Jew, they saw it and they went, wow! Wow! From Genesis to Malachi, all of the Old Testament attests to the fact that God has always wanted the Gentiles, you and me, to be shown mercy. God has always wanted the Gentiles to receive the message of life from His ambassadors, the Jews. And the Israelites who were listening to Paul's message, the Jewish Christians who were reading it, and the Jews who hadn't quite received Christ yet, who were kind of disputing it, they were seeing, they were opening their eyes saying, my goodness, look at how much the Old Testament attests to the fact that Israel was to bring the Gospel to all the nations. This was the hope of Moses. This was the hope of David. This was the hope of Isaiah, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. That all people of all nations would come to a saving knowledge of God. And we as Gentiles, as Gentiles, we, our job, is to recognize that. Our job is to recognize that our salvation is found in a Jewish Messiah. That our salvation is found and has first been brought to us by means of Jewish apostles and Jewish teachers. That Jewish men like David and Moses and Abraham were fervently praying that people like us would one day know their God. So much of who we are today is a product of what God has done through Israel. And that is why, that is why, we stand with Israel. Amen? That is why 
Christians should stand with Israel. You see, back in Genesis, it was said to Abraham by God, I will bless those, Abraham, who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you, Abraham. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a promise God was given to Abraham. He said, look, those who bless your, your people will be blessed. And those who curse your people, they will be cursed. And look around, friends. Look around. Not since World War II have we seen such chaos on the earth. Some believe that we are uh, getting near the end. I am one of them. I believe that we are rapidly approaching the last days. I wouldn't have said that a few years ago. I would have been one who would say, yeah, no, maybe not quite yet. I mean, I, I've always believed in the doctrine of imminency. I believe imminency. I believe that Jesus can come at any time. But ask me three or four years ago, I would have said, maybe. Maybe I'm the last generation. Ask me today, and I look around at my world, and I say, my goodness, I've never seen a news cycle like this. I've never seen on this scale things happening in history this fast ever. Not since World War II have we seen this much chaos. We're seeing earthquakes. We're seeing famines, tsunamis. We're seeing wars. We're hearing of rumors of wars. There is volatility and uprising in many nations in Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Tunisia, Bahrain, Yemen, Egypt, now Libya. Just a few, just a few days ago, dozens of people were killed because the Quran was burned. And these, the Bible says, are just the beginning of sorrows. I'm here to say, in no uncertain terms, that the rage and the chaos that you now see in the world, that rage and that chaos and that anger and that confusion is soon going to be exclusively directed at Israel. The uprising that you see and the volatility that you see, the hate that you see, the wars that you see, the chaos that you see in the world when you open the paper every morning, very soon, it will all be directed at Israel. And those aren't my words. They come from this book. The FBI released a report uh, just, just recently, actually. They finally uh, released the 2009 uh, hate crimes report here in America. And uh, they, they categorize all these different hate crimes. A hate crime is, is a crime committed against because a person has a certain religion or maybe a certain uh, sexual orientation or those kinds of things uh, directed at the person because they are something. And uh, of the 2009 statistics on hate crimes, there were some, some 1,500 religious hate crimes committed in the U.S. in 2009. And they listed all the religions in, the, in America uh, toward which these crimes were committed. I think uh, if I got my stats right, Catholics, excuse me, Protestants, 
you and me, 3% of 1,500 hate crimes. 3% were directed at us. Catholics, 4%. Muslims, 8%. Jews, 71%. That's from the FBI. 71% of hate crimes in America were committed because the person was a Jew. I hear on the media all the time uh, that, that Americans uh, hate Islam. Um, I'm quite sure some Americans do. But the real story in America is that a lot of Americans hate the Jews. They hate Israel tenfold more than they hate Islam. The writing's on the wall, friends. And it comes from this book. All of the rage and all of the chaos that we now see will soon be directed at Israel. And that is why we stand with Israel. Because we believe that the nation that blesses Israel will be blessed and the people that curse Israel will be cursed. We must stand with Israel. We must pray for her peace. Pray for the soon return of Christ, her Messiah, to deliver her and bring her out of the miry pit. I, don't, uh, I, say, I say plainly, I, that does not mean we, we turn a blind eye to anything that Israel does wrong. They, they, like any nation, need to be held account for anything that they do that is immoral. But on, on, on a grander scale here, if we are not supporting Israel, we are not, not paying attention to what the Scriptures would have us do. Our faith, our salvation, we are indebted to them. And part of fulfilling our, our mission in this life is to show honor to the ones who have brought us, not only our Messiah, but have brought us the message of life through Him. Let's continue on in verse 13. Paul writes this, Now may the God of hope fill you, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, now you, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. We see here in verse 13 Paul's prayer, and in verse 14 Paul's expectation. He, he writes out his prayer in, in verse 13, and I was mentioning to the men last week, uh, the, mainly the men who were here uh, because the women were on retreat, that try writing out a prayer, because Paul does it all the time. Write out your prayer for someone. This is Paul's prayer for the Christians in Rome. In verse 13, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And right after his prayer, he he immediately jumps into the fact that he has confidence in them. I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren. You're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish one another. Pay close attention to how Paul motivates here in verse 14. Notice how he motivates the Roman Christians to carry out their mission. He could have berated them for the things that they've been doing wrong. And there were some things that he listed maybe earlier in the book. He could keep berating them and say, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. But instead, here he praises them. You know, there's a time, there is a time to call people to account for not performing, right? 
Maybe we do that in the workplace at times. A boss calls to account his employee for not performing and he says, look, you know, you're not doing this right. You're not doing this well. I need you to pick it up. That's one way to motivate an employee. And sometimes that's appropriate. But you know, there's another way to motivate an employee as well. And it's when the boss comes alongside and says, great job. I notice you're doing this, this, and this so well. I'm so impressed by that. Hey, by the way, could you also uh, pay attention to this over here? And kind of pick up the pace just a little bit in this area. You're doing so well in all these areas, but hey, just in this one spot, will you pick it up? There's two ways to motivate people. One, somebody can them up a little too much. The other can lift them up and motivate them for what's ahead. Expect great things from others, Paul says. Still, in the midst of his encouragement, he does have a few things that he wants to say quite strongly to them. Quite boldly, if you will. And he's already written those in the letter. He says in verse 15, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the Gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, look, I've, I've, I've praised you. I've praised you. I have confidence in you. You're doing many things well. But there have been some points in my letter, there have been some points in my teaching to you, Christians in Rome, when I have spoken boldly. And I do it so that you will obey. That the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. None of, us, um, none of us like being lectured, right? None of us um, likes having someone else criticize us. But sometimes, Paul says, sometimes we need to speak bold words of truth to one another to encourage obedience. Um, Doug and I, we meet uh, regularly for breakfast. Usually we meet weekly. Every once in a while we, we skip a week. But Doug and I... We meet regularly for breakfast. And one of the things that we've established in our meetings is the freedom to speak boldly to one another. That's something I really appreciate about Doug. If you don't know Doug, he's a man who speaks boldly. Amen? <laughs> Doug, but, but really, Doug and I have these, we have these forthright conversations. We pull no punches with each other. We challenge each other to excellence. And there are times when, when he tells me like it is, and there are times when I tell him like it is. Right? And, but we both do so in love. We're not angry with each other. Some, some people are in, the, in the restaurant might think so. Um, but we're speaking bold words to each other. Because we, we appreciate that in one another. We appreciate the fact that we're not going to tiptoe around each other and just say, hey, you're doing a great job. We want to challenge each other. We want to push each other. And I ask you, who is it in your life, who is it that speaks bold words to you? Do you have that person? Guys, do you have another man who you've said to them, hey, you know what, you call me out anytime. You tell me anytime I'm messing up. You call me out anytime I'm, I'm lazy. Anytime I treat my wife bad. Anytime I treat my kids bad. You have permission to boldly call me out any moment. Guys, do you have that man in your life? You need that man in your life.
You need Him. Ladies, do you have that woman in your life? I know, I know for the ladies, knowing my wife, that ladies, it's harder to do that. I know, gals, it's harder to speak boldly to another friend. You do need the freedom in, in a friendship to do that, though. Ladies, you need to find that friend who you say, you know what, you can call me out when I need it. And I'll still love you. We'll still be friends. Who is that bold person in your life? A while back, I was, I was speaking with a brother in Christ and, and we, were, we were having a, a talk about his life. And uh, this is not someone anyone here knows, but um, as I was speaking to him, I boldly challenged some areas of his life. I just felt, in, I felt it incumbent upon me to just call out a few things and say a few things to him, to speak to him about his life. And I could tell he did not like it very much. He didn't like it one bit, actually. He didn't like being challenged. I think too many people today think they're above reproach. Too many people think they don't need advice. That they don't need a spiritual leader in their life. If you were to do, if you were to check some of the George Barnes studies, who, who studies churches and Christians throughout the uh, generations, he says this generation, more than any other generation, this generation, young people, listen to this, this generation, more than any generation before it, feels that they do not need advice from their pastor, their youth pastor, or their elders. More than any other generation, the generation coming up in the church is a generation that says, I don't need advice. I know what I'm doing. I don't need to listen to anybody. I don't need a, a, a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. I don't need a mentor. I don't need a, somebody to disciple me. I'm just going to go my own way because I know what I'm doing. Paul says, you need someone to speak boldly to you. You need someone to speak boldly to you. I gave a message three years ago entitled, uh, Counsel or a Rubber Stamp? What do we seek from our elders? I encourage you uh, to listen to that message if you think it might be appropriate for you. If I ever speak boldly with any of you, if our elders ever speak boldly to any of you, it is not because we wish to criticize, but because we wish to see you grow in your faith. Not because we wish to tear you down, but because we wish to see you obedient to God, to fulfill His mission He's given you. So ask for correction. Ask for reproof. You'll be better for it. Paul continues in verse 17, Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. I dare not speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished in me through in word and in deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders so that the power of uh, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul says his glory and his boast is not in himself, but is found in Christ. His mission is obedience of the Gentiles. His mission is being confirmed by mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. Who is your glory? What is your mission? Are you fulfilling it? Paul says, I fully preached the gospel of Christ. A better translation would be, I fulfilled the gospel of Christ. 
How can he say that he fulfilled it? He's taken the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. I've got a little map here just to show you what he means by that. In the bottom right corner is Jerusalem. And all the way up in the, the north, uh, northwestern part of Asia Minor is Illyricum. It was the furthest, in that, in that day and age, it was the furthest, most remote part of the Roman Empire. And Paul says, I've taken the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, roundabout. I'm fulfilling my mission. Obedience of the Gentiles. Glorying in Christ. He finishes with verse 20. And so I've made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And to those who have not heard, they shall understand. Paul knows his mission. It is to preach the gospel where Christ was not named. And that's not to say that, that Paul was not uh, adverse to building on another man's foundation. He actually considered it quite an important work. Were you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 9 to 15, you'd hear about Paul speaking about building on another man's foundation. Some of us build with things like gold, things that are, are precious and, and meaningful and worthy. And Paul lauds that and says, you know, Christ will be honored by that. Other people, they build with, with straw. They build on the foundation with straw. And they raise up a church that is weak. They raise up Christians and, and, and they bring forth disciples who are weak in the faith. Paul doesn't have kind words for that. He says, you who are building up God's church, build with precious stones, with gold, with silver. Paul's mission was to lay a foundation in places that had never heard the Gospel. And he gained motivation for that mission from Isaiah 52 where it says, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And to those who have not heard, they shall understand. In closing, Paul has, has said throughout the book of Romans that Jesus has fulfilled His mission. His death and resurrection has accomplished salvation. And He is, He has become with enduring effect, a servant to the circumcision, the Jews, and to all nations. Jesus will finally fulfill His mission at His second coming. Paul is fulfilling his mission, taking the Gospel to the ends of the earth from Jerusalem roundabout to Illyricum. And now he asks you, what is your mission? What is your mission? What has Christ put before your path? What is your mission? What is God asking you to do? What is it that God has been prompting on your heart? It, it might be something new, but it also might be something old. It might be the way in which you've been treating your family. The way in which you've been treating your spouse. The fact that you haven't witnessed to your neighbors and you've been living by them for five, ten years now. Will you fulfill it, Paul asks. Will you fulfill your mission or will you ignore it? Finally, do you need someone to speak bold words into your life to help you identify all that God has for you? You need that person, friends. I need that person. I, I always ask the elders. And I always ask uh, Doug and, and my staff, you are always, always welcome to speak bold words to me. To speak to me in a way that would say, Neil, I, I want you to take note of this. I want you to pay attention to this. I think you're weak in this area. Or I think you're doing a good job here. Whatever it is, I want the reproof. I want the correction. I want to get better. 
What is your mission? Do you want to get better? Do you want to grow in your faith? Find someone who can speak those bold words to you. And as you do, together, you can fulfill God's mission for you. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, this morning, this time in Your Word. We thank You for Romans, Lord. And uh, a passage here today which is, is very much a summary of what Paul has been saying thus far, but is nevertheless challenging to us, Lord. Sometimes we need that pat on the back, that confidence that we're doing well. Other times we need bold words, the challenge, the reproof to go deeper, to push further in our faith. I pray that each one here today would know what they need, would find others in and around them who could encourage them, who could give them that, that, that push that they need. God, we want to know what our mission is. We want to know how to complete it. We don't want to ignore it. Help us, Lord. May Your Spirit guide us as we seek to grow in You and fulfill our mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.